is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Kenya Alonzo. And I'm Edgar Cruz. This summer, the city of Albuquerque and First Lady Elizabeth Kiston Keller launched the 1ABQ Challenge, an initiative to encourage citizens to engage in community service projects that connect youth and elders. Generation Justice's contribution to the 1ABQ Challenge is our series, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants where youth producers interviewed civil rights activists here in Albuquerque. Tonight, we feature our final installment of the 1ABQ Challenge. We'll hear from Elena Giacci, an anti-domestic and sexual violence advocate and trainer in oppression and historical trauma. Alan Marks, a mentor, former teacher, and co-founder of the South Valley Academy. And First Lady Elizabeth Kisten Keller speaks with Generation Justice about her vision as First Lady and what shaped the 1ABQ initiative. Elena Giacci is an advocate and educator with Wayaluta Training. She is a 30-year advocate for anti-domestic and anti-sexual violence and provides training on historical trauma and oppression. Elena has also served on the board of the Rape Crisis Center of Central New Mexico. Now my co-host and GJ Media Justice intern, Kenya Alonzo, speaks with Elena about how indigeneity has been the source of her activism. This is Kenya Alonzo with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Elena Giacci, a national trainer on anti-domestic and sexual violence, oppression, and historical trauma. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Elena, will you please tell us more about yourself? Well, first off, I would say that I come from Tichitni and Toriachitni, Bashashi, the Dene Nation. I have been doing work with sexual and domestic violence and historical trauma and oppression issues and racism issues. Well, realistically, all my life I've been um, working with community, working with friends, relatives who have been affected by that, but really doing training on these issues for uh, just coming up on 29 years of doing that kind of work. Right. Thank you. Could you tell us the story of how you became involved in social justice movements within the community? Well, you know, it started early on. Um, actually, my first round was uh, doing a sit-in for Kent State University, which was way back when. And I was in junior high and decided to see if we could do a sit-in for all of those lives lost at Kent State. And so um, once I did that and organized that and I saw the community come together over an issue, I was pretty well hooked. And um, during that period of time, there were all sorts of movements uh, for uh, women, for equality, for all of those issues, because this was like early 70s and going forward. And so I really became involved in those issues. But I came involved with the sexual violence issues because so many of my sisters, relatives, and friends had been affected by rape. And I remember sitting there with a number of my uh, women friends talking about it, complaining about nobody's doing anything, and realized I wasn't doing much to 
fight it, to put my voice out there, and so then really strategized on how I could make that happen. And instead of complaining and, you know, being outraged to really try to make some movement on that. Could you tell us about your training on historical trauma? I think it's an interesting one because I think when I started doing this work, there wasn't training for historical trauma. There wasn't information really even about historical trauma until we, you know, had like people like Maria uh, Braveheart who did work on those types of things. And so we all knew what it was, but we didn't know what to call it. And so uh, really taking a look at those types of things, we saw what it was happening and we knew it, but just having a name to that. And then just doing a lot of uh, good information on and listening, like I said, listening to the community, to what works, to the stories, to the unveiling of um, understanding what occurred in residential schools, um, listening to that, learning the big history lessons that uh, not only was in the books and the research, but what our storytellers were giving us as far as information goes. And I would say the most weight I put is maybe not so much in books, but in the stories that our elders tell us. Thank you. How does indigeneity inform your training and advocacy work? I think it's how I breathe. Um, there's a word in Lakota way that call, it says mihisani, which is like my skin, right? So it would be hard for me to separate my spirituality and who I am from my walk and my journey. So every single day, my breath is taken in that way. And when I do the trainings, I do it as a Native woman walking this journey, um, respectful of my elders and making sure that I walk in a balanced way because I know that I have the weight of when, when I show pictures of residential schools or when I hear the stories or when people are generous enough in the elders and the sisters and the aunties and uncles who give me those stories. Those are sacred stories. That's Those are sacred gifts. And I need to walk in balance with that gift that they are giving to me because I know exactly how sacred it is. In some cases, it's where no one has told their story before. And that is so sacred that they give you that trust. And to me, if I walk as a good, balanced Native woman, then I am doing and serving my nation in a good way. What is the significance of Indigenous female leadership at this moment in time? Huge. Um, we, as a community, have been struggling in such a significant way with both historical trauma, racism, oppression, but for our women and our sisters and our children and our youth, we need to really try to unravel this rape and sexual assault that so many of our relatives are facing every single day and then multiple times. And so trying to think that if we gather our power together, because it's so easily to be divided, um, especially when we look at 
just like our pueblos, our nations, our reserves, our villages, just in the fact that we oftentimes are isolated in that way. And even in urban areas, being isolated, it's really hard to gather our community um, for a single voice to try to do that. And we've done that very successfully when we really work at it. Um, when you look at Standing Rock and all the things that happened there, that was a matter of people gathering or the American Indian Movement when it did that. So there have been times that we really have done that. We do it within community, but we really need to try to stand together on all of these other issues where we've been very successful in doing it. We need to continue to do it. We need to yell a little louder to have people really listen um, because oftentimes our cries for help, our um, outrage falls on deaf ears to outside community and we're angry and we need to do something about it. Elena, who inspires you? I think when you look at your, whether it be a Wilma man killer or my grandma uh, or my great-grandma or my great-grandpa who would tell us the stories, I think we can find brilliance in our elders. We can find suffering in our elders who tell those stories, who are brave and courageous to tell their stories. Every auntie that I've ever met along my way or a sister that I've met along my way who shared their stories because that is so courageous. And I know sometimes when I meet women who have been raped, and even as a child, and they feel that they're not strong, it's quite the opposite. You look at the courage of just saying the words, or you look at the courage of after a tragedy and a trauma like that, that they wake up the next morning and still put one foot in front of the other is tremendously um, courageous. So I am inspired by the women of our community. I am inspired by the leaders and women of our community. And I am inspired by every survivor who has walked, you know, our Mother Earth, who lives every day helping, supporting, or being able to raise children even though they have been a survivor. Is there anything that you would tell your younger self? Oh, yeah. I learned a lot about my anger. I mean, as both a victim and a survivor walking that journey, I learned how angry I could be. When I see the oppression of my community, I get pretty angry. Um, when I still see it, I get angry. And when I see people and women and children and our grandmas and grandpas getting hurt, I get angry. And how I harness that anger is a lot different than I used to. I think I would bite at people and I would do that. And I think there is a time and a place where your rage is appropriate to be able to fight for a cause that you believe in. I think your rage is appropriate sometimes that keeps you going when you've been beaten down by the, the best and the brightest and the most powerful, that your rage can can soothe that heart a little bit to say, I'm doing the right thing. That being said, I learned how to walk in balance with my rage and anger and still be able to do 
a collaboration with people that I never thought I would collaborate with and how to be able to make steps forward with people that typically you don't necessarily always agree with. That's a tough one. I agree. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's very important to take that anger and rage and instead of letting it cause destruction or harm to anyone, it's mm-hmm. important to bring something really positive out of it. And so Absolutely. I really appreciate you really speaking to that. What advice do you have for young people today? To not be afraid of what other people are going to say about you. I think there were times that I would get worried about, well, are people going to say that I'm too angry, too upset, too involved, not involved enough? What happens if people get mad and don't invite me back? And now I would like, you know, don't worry about that. If you walk your path and you feel balanced in your path, that I think along with it, you're going to learn along the way. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. I have made a ton of mistakes. I continue to make a ton of mistakes. And I learn from each one of them. And that's the beauty of, of failing is learning from those those lessons. And not to be afraid to fail and not to be afraid. I don't think I listened well. And I don't think I listened to the elders as much as I think I should have. And I think, you know, just getting a little bit of knowledge and listening and keeping my mouth shut sometimes, because that was a really tough one for me, um, it was to just find that balance. And, and yeah, I didn't know everything as I thought I did, and I still don't, but now I know I don't. Elena, what's the best advice that you've received? Probably walking in balance, and I really didn't know what that meant until I had an elder really say that I was not walking in balance. And like we were you know, talking about earlier, if you have that anger, but you're not attached to that also gentle side. So there has to be two sides of, of the story so that as you walk that journey, you can walk maybe on one side or the other, but basically when you look at the tools that you have, saying, was that in balance? When I answer a question, when I make a presentation, when I might be impatient with someone, it's like, was that a balanced statement? And sometimes it's not. That's okay because sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be in balance all the time, but that as you get those baskets along that journey, that each side is well represented. And to really take a look at your every, it's easy looking at that toolbox that you have is like, is this a balanced thing that I'm doing? Or is this being done clearly on one side or the other? And if it is, then taking a look if that's the way it needs to be done to get a little bit more balance on that side is okay. But as you make that journey, over the whole time is to walk in that good way. How do you keep your spirits up when seeing so much affecting our community? That's a tough one. It really is, and it's a great question because I think that when I look at a lot of people who do this work, they do it for a short period of time because they burn themselves out. And 
It's tough. You know, you see someone right after they've been raped or beaten. You see someone who has never had the journey of healing, who is barely making a breath on this Mother Earth. You see the results of historical trauma on your an entire community and what's happening to them. And you get mad and you get angry like we were talking about. And I think that I have had to find that balance, that balance of the stories who have been told by elders of how they made it, how they survived, the beauty in the survival. Um, I remember sitting there with one of my grandmas on her porch and the sun was going down and she was talking about all of these lessons and how to learn them and how to learn them well. And realizing that that offsets the horrific things that I see, the stories that grandpa's. I remember grandpa who told me his survival story of residential school. And then right in the middle of this presentation, he started singing a song. And he said he hadn't sung that in like 30 years. And those are the gifts that I get that make me find that balance to not give up. And then the other piece is trying to have a good balance outside of my work to be able to find joy. I raise butterflies, and man, that is something, because each time you set a butterfly free, you give it a prayer, and it goes up, and you just go, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing is we're setting those butterflies free every single day. And that's sometimes the only thing I have to hold on to when things feel overwhelmingly difficult is the beauty of meeting new people, meeting young people, because boy, that that often carries me because I know they're the future. They're going to go out and release more butterflies into this world. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I think just for community that is out there, especially with the sexual violence component and how often we see um, survivors out there that have not yet told their story. And I just want in that most loneliest time to let them know that they're not alone, that there are people out there that are wanting to listen, that there are people out there that hear their pain and that there are people out there that don't blame them for what has occurred to them. And I think most of all, when we look at whether it be historical trauma or other components of sexual or intimate partner violence to let people know that, man, this is not of our making. This is not our fault. And that there are people who really genuinely care. Elena, thank you so much for taking the time to come here to speak with us. As a Navajo woman, as an indigenous woman, I'm on the front lines of these issues. I'm These are things that my family members, that my friends are experiencing directly. And I just really want to say thank you for your strength and taking the initiative in fighting these issues. And I just want to thank you for your honesty and for sharing your stories and just for sharing your life with us. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. This was Kenya Alonzo with Generation Justice. Elena, it was such an honor to interview you. After meeting you, I became conscious of all the different ways that I could be helping women. 
All the work you do is rooted in love and resiliency and being able to hear about it from you directly was so amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Elena, for sharing your skills and your knowledge through your trainings. I appreciate you being in our community. After many years of teaching in public high school, Alan Marks co-founded the South Valley Academy. Alan has been dedicated to education because he recognizes the connection between education and people's ability to advocate for their rights. Now, Alan Marks speaks to media justice intern Edgar Cruz. This is Edgar Cruz with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Alan Marks. Alan Marks grew up in El Paso, Texas. He attended college at Stanford University and after two years living in Chile, returned to the U.S. to study law and economics. Along the way, he became credentialed as a secondary English teacher. From 1978 to 1992, he worked as a teacher at Rio Grande High School in Albuquerque's South Valley. In 1989, he was chosen as New Mexico's and U.S. West's National Teacher of the Year. He has helped hundreds of students of color from across New Mexico successfully apply to and graduate from the nation's top private colleges and universities. In 2000, along with a former student, he founded a charter high school, South Valley Academy, which serves primarily immigrant children. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thanks, Edgar. Alan, will you please tell us about your path into activism? I was a young boy growing up in... El Paso, Texas, in a fairly suburban-type setting. And I had the good fortune to have a a number of influential people introduce me to literature that made me think that maybe everything wasn't just as perfect as uh, the television and the media would lead me to believe. And from that moment on, I was never content with the surface of the stories that I read and heard. I, w- I always look, tried to look beneath them. When JFK was uh, killed, uh, I did a research paper in which I was looking at sources from France and other places that were questioning whether the U.S. had actually even found the legitimate killer or whether there was something else going on. So I became a skeptic, I would say, from that moment on. And a couple of other things might be relevant, and that is growing up in El Paso, I would spend time in Juarez. And I went to places in Juarez where, and I could even see them every day across the river from my house. I There were places where houses didn't have windows, and I could tell that people were living very, very differently from the middle-class life that my sister and I and my family experienced. Then I went away to uh, college uh, in the midst of the Vietnam War, and there were people that were resisting induction, people that were burning their draft cards, 
everybody was challenging and questioning whether or not the United States had any legitimate purpose uh, fighting in Vietnam. And so that was a very radicalizing experience for me. I saw that if we stand up, if our, my fellow students and I would stand up, that we could change U.S. policy. Another important thing for me was that uh, when I was about 15, I read an interview about this guy named Fidel Castro, who led this revolution in Cuba. And I was really excited by what I read, by what I read about the literacy programs that that were instituted after uh, Fidel and the other uh, revolutionaries came to power, uh, about health care being made available, housing being made available, a lot of things that I believed in. That was very, very important to me. And when I got to the university, I studied at Samore. And around that time, the uh, there was an election in, in Chile, and Salvador Allende came to power by the vote. And here was a person who believed in a lot of the same things. He believed in making education available to everyone. Um, he believed in uh, redistributing the land, an agrarian reform program, um, and on and on and on. And so I decided this just sounds too good to be true. And I fortunately had been able to escape the draft by that time uh, because of a lottery that was put in place. And my number was uh, not called. And at that point, I decided it was time for me to get away from the university for a bit, experience more of the world. So I went down there and actually worked in the agrarian reform program for a year with some poor campesinos who, uh, they were actually uh, native uh, they were Araucanos, and they had worked on a large plantation, uh, a hacienda that was owned by some rich Argentinians who were never there. And they had always worked with making almost nothing. It always worked for this, um, this family. And now suddenly, with the change of the Allende government, they were being allowed to work this huge farm for themselves. And so I worked with them because I wanted to experience what that sort of life was like. Subsequently, I came back and finished my degree and started going to law school. But I found that I was not very happy with what I learned. And I did start asking more and more questions about what I had experienced in Chile. And so that's why I went to study economics. Um, at this very exciting place at the University of Massachusetts. As I was kind of finishing that period, I started thinking, what I really need to do is I need to become part of a community that believes in me, that trusts me. Because when I had been in Chile, I was, I was a, an estranjero, I was a, I was a foreigner, and people treated me incredibly well, but I realized they had no real reason to trust me and I thought, you know, I need to build trust if I'm going to go live somewhere other than where I grew up. And the way that I thought might make the most sense would be to teach high school, where I could help students learn their rights and I could become part of their community. Thank you so much. 
Can you tell us more about your time as a, as a teacher and some of the lessons you learned? Well, my students taught me so much while I was at Rio Grande High School. I would give an assignment and my students would bring me something very different from what I expected. And I realized that the problem was probably that I hadn't been clear enough about the assignment or that I hadn't thought about communication. I would Sometimes I would sit there for hours at the end of the day just thinking about what I had learned or actually how unsuccessfully I had managed to teach that day and what I needed to do to, to do better. And I wanted to teach them how to read and think, and I wanted to teach them how to how to think critically and problem solve. But kind of looking over my shoulder, I noticed that the best students were not taking advantage of college opportunities. So kind of on the side, after school, during lunch, I started helping them a little bit with the college testing, and then little by little, help them with uh, other pieces of the college application. And so about the second or third year I was there, there was a, a couple of students that were very successful and had gotten into terrific colleges with great financial aid packages, and they didn't go. So I go talk to another teacher who was a real ally there. And she said, Alan, she says, I don't think they're ever going to go unless we take them there. So I thought about that. And the next day, I went and talked to her 10th grade class, and I told the students, I said, okay, I want you guys to go get jobs this summer because next spring, over spring break, we're going to go look at some colleges. And that was the first year that I did a trip to look at colleges. That year, we went to California, and we looked at a lot of colleges out there, and a year or two later, I took another group, and we went to look at colleges on the East Coast. Out of that first year's class, those were 10th graders when I spoke to them, 11th graders when we went on the trip. Two of the students ended up going to Stanford, two went to Princeton, two went to Duke, one went to Pomona College in L.A. And that I think that was kind of the beginning of... Uh, me seeing that Susan was right and saying that if we can just get them there and make it more real, that could be an opportunity. I think the point was that it's hard to imagine yourself being in a world that you haven't seen, haven't experienced. It's just very difficult. You're an 18-year-old. Your parents have probably haven't traveled that much. It's a big risk. But the more interesting fact was that at Rio Grande High School, we typically would see entering ninth grade classes of 1,100 or 1,000 students, and we would see a graduation class, or people who would graduate would be more in the vicinity of 300. And of those 300 that were graduating, very few were going to college and finishing college. So that, to me, represented a huge hurdle for the South Valley if we were not educating a much, much more significant percentage of our youth, how were we going to change things? How, who was going to stand up and help make changes? Yet the fact that kids were going away to these colleges, I thought about it two ways. One is 
that because these schools had such huge endowments that the students could go free of charge, it was actually cheaper for them to go to one of these colleges than to go to UNM. But the other thing was that they would have a first-rate education, and hopefully they would come back home and participate in their community and become leaders in their community. So the whole idea was to build capacity, which actually gets to the chartering experience about why we decided to, to start a small school in the South Valley. And so can you tell us more about the, the climate around the founding of the South Valley Academy and with receiving charter for it, but also what brought you to starting a charter school? So I think I, one one thing to say right at the outset is that with so so many students uh, dropping out, I knew that we had to do a better job, that we were not really serving our community well if we were doing that. So some of the inspiration to do a charter school was to provide the support necessary where every teacher knew, every student. That was, uh, that was one idea behind it. When you use the word climate, uh, I feel like I should say two things. One is that we applied for the charter and did get it, but one of the requirements was to have a place. And we looked all over the South Valley. We went to Ernie Pyle Middle School, and we spoke to the principal, and they had a vacant lot that we could put three portable buildings on, which was enough for us to start our ninth grade class. So the issue was, could we get permission from APS to put our buildings there. We talked to some school board members, a couple, and they said they put us on the agenda for a given night. And we brought about 200 uh, supporters with us. And so three school board members said that they supported us. Three said that they opposed us. And then it was up to the president of the school board who did not like us, to cast the deciding vote. But he looked over the audience, and he saw the kind of support that we had, and so he agreed. Another interesting story about climate that people wouldn't believe today was that Kata and I started trying to find the teachers and interview teachers. Teachers did not believe that charters were here to stay, and they were afraid to leave their safe position at a, an APS school. So it was quite difficult to find teachers. What advice do you have for young people? What do you think we need to be doing right now? It seems as though almost anywhere you are in your life, there's actions you can take, things you can do, both to inform yourself and your community and others about things that matter about injustice that you notice, about things that don't seem fair. If you think about it, young people, probably more than anyone else, they really care about fairness. So I think young people are terrific barometers of fairness. And when they see uh, situations that are not fair, if they feel empowered to go and challenge those uh, assumptions, I think there's opportunities. I, I will give you um, one example. At South Valley Academy, we started a service learning program, 
And all of the students participate on Thursday afternoons uh, with an organization in their community. Over a period of time, they become aware both of what different organizations, nonprofits in the community are doing, and they also get ideas about who they could work with or what cause they could join, or small things, small things that they can do for uh, an elderly population or a disabled population. There's all kinds of acts of uh, compassion and trying to achieve social justice that kids can be involved in, and that remains the case for all of our lives. Well, Alan, thank you so much for sharing this time with us and for being such a strong force in our community. I'm so grateful to you personally, but for all of Generation Justice, we're so lucky to have you in our community and with us in the studio. Thank you so much. With Generation Justice, this is Edgar Cruz. Alan, thank you so much for sharing this conversation with me and with the rest of our Generation Justice family. I really feel myself thinking differently after our conversation about my education, my career, and how I can use my experience to really help anyone around me. And I thank you for that. Alan, I deeply appreciate the work that you have done for the community. Thank you. Albuquerque's First Lady, Elizabeth Kisten Keller, a native Burqueña, earned her bachelor's in political science and Latin American studies from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a master's and PhD in international development studies as a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford University. She has worked internationally in global water conflict and cooperation, and is currently the principal systems analyst at Sandia National Labs. Generation Justice is honored to speak with First Lady Keller, Speaking with her is Media Justice intern Edgar Cruz. This is Edgar Cruz with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with First Lady Elizabeth Kisten Keller. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us more about yourself. Well, let's see. I was born and raised here in Albuquerque. I'm the third of four kids and was lucky after graduating high school to have opportunities, research work opportunities, to travel all over the world. And then after about 10 years, move back uh, right to the place I started. And so I am excited now to be here in Albuquerque as a daughter and a sister, a wife, a mom, a scientist, a teacher, a mentor, a student. And I think what cuts through all of those is uh, a bridge builder. So excited to be connecting dots between different communities and working on impact on different levels. Thank you so much. What is your and the mayor's vision for our city? That's a great question. So as I'm sure uh, some of your listeners have seen, there's a lot of talk right now about one Albuquerque. Um, and, And what that means for us and the way it embodies our vision is a recognition that I think is rooted deep in the history of our city. But it's a recognition that we as a city rise and fall and rise together. And that we all have the responsibility and also the power 
to work together to address our most pressing challenges. So it's a vision that recognizes the city has a crucial role to play, but that also recognizes that no individual, no organization, no sector can do this work on their own. So we're working to have the city be a core catalyst in creating a brighter future for everyone that's here um, and really building lots of partnerships to do that. So as we think about um, this one Albuquerque vision, uh, my role has been to think about how I might be able to utilize my skill set as a complex systems analyst and as a bridge builder to help augment this vision for the city. Tell us more about the One ABQ Challenge. So the One ABQ Challenge we launched this year as a first trial run, and it was a citywide service challenge that ran throughout the month of August. And the idea was pretty simple. The service challenge asked folks across Albuquerque to think about making time in the month of August to step up and engage in at least one act of service around this year's theme. And this year's theme was around connecting youth and elders in our city. The 1ABQ challenge itself as a project and this theme were both born out of lots of conversations with community leaders around the city. What we heard in these conversations, the mayor and myself, over and over and over again, what struck us was the real hope for this city. And it wasn't some sort of passive hope, right, that things here just get better on their own. But it was the kind of hope that was sort of rooted in the belief that we are a resilient and resourceful bunch in Albuquerque, that we have what we need here in terms of expertise and energy and innovation to address some of our most important challenges. It's a hope that's born out of the belief that we have a responsibility to take care of each other and also a hope that's born out of this notion that if we work together, we really can create a better future for everyone. In Albuquerque. And so it was those conversations and I think recognizing that deep hope here that got us starting to ask some what if questions. What if there was a way for us to acknowledge uh, the strengths that had led to this resilience and some of that power um, and also to build on it, to be able to connect folks who were desperate to be part of a solution, but kept coming back to us saying, we're not quite sure where or how we might get engaged. Uh, and so that's where the idea was born originally. Thank you for Slady. Uh, and Tell me more about where this intergenerational model for the One ABQ Challenge kind of came from. We were looking for a theme for this challenge that was broad enough that it would allow folks to come up with an innovative set of responses um, and ideas for projects, but it was focused enough to really feel like we were doing something together as a community. Folks really keyed in on this intergenerational component about connecting youth and elders. And when they did so, they evoked the past the present and the future when they talked about how important this was to our community. Folks who talked about the past mentioned that so much of our resilience as a community was built upon intergenerational connections through families and sharing of knowledge through generations. When folks talked about the present, they mentioned that some of the most innovative pieces happening were working to connect youth and elders in interesting ways. W ways that volunteer groups had mobilized seniors to engage with students across our community. And similar, the flip, that groups of students were mobilizing to help seniors with IT pieces, but also to engage on broader cultural questions. 
And finally, looking to the future, community leaders who had challenged us and said, you know, when we're constantly talking about statistics for our city or our state, it is too easy to fall into a trap where both of these populations, youth and elders, are talked about as vulnerabilities or as problems to be solved. And instead of thinking about this as vulnerabilities, we recognize both of these populations separately, but also working together as true assets to the community and as powerful protagonists, right, in this next chapter that we write together as a city. Thank you so much. Let's hear some audio from Ron Solomon, Jennifer Cornish, Father Frank Quintana, Kathy McGill, and Beva Sanchez Padilla. Young people, I think, uh, as we older Native Americans or older people, you know, just when we look at you, we cherish you. We cherish you, you know, and hold you in high esteem. And we want you to get prepared for the execution of your own life. You know, what kinds of core values do you bring? think if you don't know what your core values are or if you're a tribal person, explore that with your family or with uh, relatives that can talk to you about what the core values are of your tribal community. Advice is a tricky thing, right? Because you can say something and they go, oh yeah, well, that was you. That doesn't necessarily apply to me. Um, but I do tell myself, I do tell younger people, so, you know, pace yourself, take it easy, be nice to yourself. Here, here's a peach, <laughs> or whatever it is, you know. Um, so I do see it as part of my role to um, love and care for younger people, uh, because we all need it. But I, I have the ability to um, now have more energy to do that than to give that to others. The advice that I would give to young people is ignore when anyone says that you are our future. You are not our future. You are our now. That you, you have been inspired, whether by God, by another person. If you have been inspired to speak out and to stand up about a particular issue or need, or you see an injustice being done, or you see peace being violated, or you hear a speech or you read a tweet that violates all that is decent, good, just, right, and holy, then you have a voice and you need to speak up no matter how old you are. I would say that it's our job, our absolute responsibility to create a world that works for everyone and one where we respect and celebrate our differences and where we make room for our differences and we celebrate them and we make no room for anything that is other than that. I think that once you recognize, whether no matter what age you are, once you recognize that the playing field that we live on is, is uneven, that at that moment, at that juncture, that you see there was inequity and injustice, that the road you take 
is very important. If it's fueled with anger, and it will, you will have a lot of anger, but if it's fueled with anger, you're not going to get very far, and that's very, very difficult. But once you recognize that there's injustice, you can't really let that go. That, in fact, you proceed with a sense of calm in all your work and to know that your, your work will never be totally done. You have to work on some level uh, at making that playing field a little more um, even. You just heard Ron Solomon, Jennifer Cornish, Father Frank Quintana, Kathy McGill, and Beva Sanchez Padilla. What are your reactions? First, I want to thank all of you for the tremendous work you've done in pulling together these interviews. I think the the wisdom and the insight that you've captured is a real treasure for us as a community. And as someone who has uh, met many of these leaders and, and worked with them in different capacities, there was a richness in these interviews that I never knew before, both about their own history. So thank you for that and the contribution. I want to pick up and react to a couple of different threads that came out of of some of these interviews. And the first is a piece uh, I think that um, both uh, Ron and Father Frank bring up, uh, especially and some of the others touched on. And this is about making space and deliberately making space for youth to lead. I think one of the things I am most proud of, uh, of the current city administration, is the deliberate attempt to make space for new leaders who haven't always been welcomed in, both to the city hall apparatus, but to the wider engagement strategy. And I think this notion about never let anyone tell you you're the leaders of tomorrow, that this is really about leadership for today. I think we've seen this on a number of different issues, whether it's uh, gun violence in the community or innovation around economic development, that we really have students from the high school, college level, young professionals taking on incredible leadership roles in this community and inspiring and igniting action uh, in a very exciting way. A couple of the other themes I think that came up was this comment, right, that we don't have all the answers, you know, and I think this was uh, maybe Jennifer's piece on the advice is tricky. We don't have all the answers. The design for the 1ABQ service challenge kept that in mind specifically, which is to say, you know, I don't as First Lady or we don't as the city presume to know the kind of service projects we should do that are going to move this city forward. So what we said to you is we're going to frame this challenge in a broad way, and we want folks to come back to us with their creativity, their understanding of their needs of their own neighborhood or family or community, and be able to take some of those emergent ideas and build off of them, not just for the next service challenge, but to build off of them in the way we're structuring programs in family and community services or senior affairs. And that is part of, right, making room for the entire city to lead. And for us, that vision of how you flip City Hall inside out and serve as a catalyst and as a connector that is able to tap into the real innovative, creative, uh, and resilient potential that our city has. So Those were very exciting pieces for me. I think uh, two other themes that stuck out, right, were both Kathy and Beva talking about this need to make room 
for the differences, right? To pay attention to the injustices, to pay attention to the equity, and recognize that these fights are are never over, right? That we stand on the shoulders of giants reaching the point we have on some of those pieces. But there is a moment for our generation now to step up and look at those challenges and look at some of those problems with fresh eyes. And I think those elements are critical to the philosophy in terms of governance with the city. And they're also critical to this vision for service to recognize this is an ongoing process. We have to sow the seeds in any way we can to get those human connections across our city to start those conversations. Thank you so much, First Lady, for your reactions and for that insight. Would you mind sharing some of your earliest experiences in working towards social justice? Absolutely. So I think the earliest experiences for me are growing up, I think, um, really learning from both of my parents who raised us with just a commitment constantly, I think, to being able to look at problems from a big systems level and then break it down to a smaller level and move between the micro and macro seamlessly. We were lucky that my mom, who is a nurse, had stayed home while we were in elementary school. But before you know, school breakfast was a thing, she recognized helping out in the classroom that lots of the students weren't eating before they came to school. And so she figured out by just buying big cans of peanut butter and jelly, she could make sandwiches and help address those pieces. Uh, Addressing the immediate need in the short term, and then working with partners throughout the school and throughout the district to help create a wider solution for that. And so I think her inspiration from for me of how she navigated um, and used her skill set as a nurse and as a public health care professional to frame problems, to tackle challenges, and to really jump in and address them has been an inspiration and, and probably some of my earliest memories. It wasn't until later, obviously, as I grew up that I understood the significance of what those pieces were, but it was something that was just in, ingrained in our house mm-hmm. from an early early days. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. In the, around that young age, um, and thinking back to you, that younger you, what is some advice that you maybe needed to hear in that younger you? I think there's a, a, a piece of advice about really exploring broadly at a young age. There is an element about a pressure to specialize in pieces, especially to specialize in a specific discipline or a specific sport or a specific activity. Uh, And for me, I have found great joy over time in having a breadth of that. I think we are now at a point um, in society where we also recognize that most of the complex challenges we face and most of the really innovative solutions that people find are the kinds of things that cut across disciplines, that take folks being able to understand quantitative information and qualitative information together, to use frames from dis- different disciplines, to be able to talk to folks with really different backgrounds. And so I think to the extent possible, it's, it's always good to gain that depth of expertise, but not to ever sort of shortcut the breadth of opportunities and really push yourself to try lots of new and exciting things, even when they're scary. And even when you're nervous, right, that you you don't know it all yet, or you won't be successful, leaning into some of that discomfort and some of that newness, um, as I think back, were probably the most rewarding experiences for me along the way. Why is it important to preserve the stories of elders and activists in our community? 
So I think it's not just the sharing of stories, right, or, or placing them on a pillar as solid pieces or that. But but what is most important is enabling those conversations, the active and dynamic exchange of ideas between generations looking at these pieces where there's collective problem solving in those pieces. And I think that is a lot of um, what you all have done through this project and even through these interviews and being able to showcase those pieces. The ripple effects through our community as families or coworkers are listening to your podcast and having conversations about them, which is going to be vital for us. We can't move ahead and tackle these challenges without understanding the historical implications and some of those pieces. But we're also not going to make progress if we continue to push forward the same pieces we've already tried or we're not tailoring it to new possibilities. So that coupling, that kind of bridge building um, in my view, is is the only way we will ever be able to address the complex challenges we face and to be able to take advantage of the amazing opportunities we have as a city. Well, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think just real gratitude. I'm not sure when we started the 1ABQ Challenge that I could have envisioned the kind of stories and the kind of wisdom that you all are capturing. I think it was deep down our great hope in recognizing how important storytelling was to this, but I think has exceeded sort of wildest expectations as as we think about the service challenge, not as something that starts and ends in August, but really just as the beginning, right, of a year-long effort to transform how we're talking with each other, how we're solving problems together, how we're engaging the broader community. And I'm just so grateful uh, for the work you guys have brought to that, the wisdom um, you've brought, the wisdom you've brought in with your interviewees. And I look forward to continuing to um, stay in touch with the work you guys are doing. Thank you so much, First Lady, for spending this time with us tonight. For Generation Justice, this is Edgar Cruz. Elizabeth, I am so thrilled to be a part of this initiative with the city of Albuquerque, and I'm so grateful to you for encouraging our city to see and celebrate our stories. Elizabeth, thank you for the 1ABQ initiative. It has been so amazing meeting and interviewing our city's social justice giants. We've reached the end of another hour of resistance. We would like to thank our guests, Elena Giacci, Alan Marks, and First Lady Elizabeth Kiston Keller. And thank you to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Production for tonight's show came from Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can see our multimedia content and listen to our podcast, which is also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can visit us on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konama Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Kenia Alonso. 
Coming up on KUNM is spoken word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches. Nos vemos pronto.